Nothing makes me happier than walking down the street listening to my playlist called Italia. All of a sudden, I find myself in Italy by the sea. It's hot. It's a little too hot, even. I have the taste of garlic pasta in my mouth, and I hear talking Italian all around. I enjoy doing nothing, and I have the feel of a strong sense of peace. And kind of without realizing it, I start to dance. It's a slight movement of the shoulders or the neck, or my toe tapping to the beat. So why do I feel so light when I press play to start my playlist, but sick to my stomach when I think about my activism? I do love my work, dismantling the patriarchy more than anything in the world. So why don't I associate it with the feeling of pleasure I get from listening to Italian music? Bonsoir, Rebecca Amselem. Merci d'être avec nous. Back in June 2021, I was a guest on the French news channel. It was really hot that day, and I remember arriving late. I didn't have the time to go through hair and makeup. And so I went on set in a sweat, looking like I hadn't slept in six years. In fact, I felt like I hadn't slept in six years, not peacefully anyway. I could already feel the belittling looks of the other speakers. There were four of them, the journalist, two male columnists, and a female columnist. The debate was about whether or not there should be a quota for women in cultural institutions. The female columnist suggested that my intention was to extend these quotas to other criteria than gender, like sexual orientation. I immediately that it wasn't, because to do so it would be actually illegal in France. And she replied that she wanted to believe me, but couldn't, because she considered my views too extreme. Do you remember in the previous episode when I told you that the conservatives think radical feminists are extremists? Well... This is a perfect example. To every argument that came out of my mouth, the response was the same. This point was being made by a feminist, therefore extreme, and so it wasn't valid. Why did they invite me if it wasn't for a debate? It didn't start with the set. I read the comments under the playback video the next day. She's not wired right. She's got a problem with men. As an activist, you're considered a troublemaker, onset and offset. It's not always easy to find joy in that. Have you ever had that nightmare when you were a child? You know, the one where you scream and no one hears you, or you scream and no sound comes out? Well, this is actually what the life of an activist looks like. No one wants to hear you, so they don't. My name is Rebecca Amselem. I'm a French and Canadian feminist activist. Welcome to The Method. Gloria Steinem, a major figure of the U.S. women's movement, told New York Magazine in 1998 at the age of 64, After 20 years, I couldn't do it anymore. I'd been through five stages of burnout. I got breast cancer. The universe was telling me to slow down. I think about the members of Congress sometimes. They have a staff. A movement person has much more work than a member of Congress, and no staff, really. In a way, a movement is like a campaign that never ends, that election day never comes. The kind of burnout experienced by Gloria Steinem is a recurring topic of conversation in feminist circles. Many activists have thrown in the towel, fighting for a better world when the people around you are doing everything to get this one this way isn't always fun, especially when you've been raised to be a people pleaser. 
Because that's what little girls are told to do, right? To be quiet, to be sweet, polite, nice, and to smile so that people will say, oh, what a cute little girl. In this context, you realize that they just don't want to hear you say that the world must be changed. When you say, we don't want to say crime of passion, we say femicide, or equal pay has a systemic cause, we need to overhaul the whole system if you want to fix the problem. Well, in that case, you're clearly a killjoy, especially if you say it loud and clear. But go and try destroying the patriarchy gently and discreetly. It's not possible and doesn't work. So on top of everything else, feminists feel guilty for not taking on the role they were assigned to as little girls. Guilt is not much fun either. And when you don't blame yourself, others do it for you. Starting with the haters. It's like similar to the Dementors in Harry Potter, you know? They suck out all of your joy and all of your energy and leave you with nothing but sadness and despair. As soon as you make a mistake, they come in packs to magnify it. And if you don't make a mistake, there's always something to blame you for. That's why any feminist activist who has ever spoken out publicly has this habit of scoring social media first thing in the morning to see if anything happened overnight. And when you don't react publicly to a specific event, the media always comes asking for an explanation, no exception. The French journalist and activist Rokaya Diallo has even created a hashtag, to try and make fun of it. But as activists, this permanent obligation to react places us in a grueling position. Fighting with joy and enthusiasm is made all the more difficult due to a popular but cliche assumption that activists are unhappy people. I don't know about you, but when I hear the word protest, the first image that comes to my mind is that of angry coal miners or truckers shouting in the streets. I want you to know something. There ain't nobody gonna turn us around. The reason I think of these things is because traditionally, activism is not supposed to be a joyful affair. And this is something that Emma Goldman, a Jewish anarchist born in the Russian Empire in 1869, greatly regretted. Emma Goldman was passionate about dance. She recounts an accusation she received one night at a New York party in support of women on strike. She says, At the dances, I was one of the most untiring and gayest. One evening, a cousin of Sasha, a young boy, Sasha was her boyfriend, took me aside with a grave face as if he were about to announce the death of a dear comrade. He whispered to me that it did not behoove an agitator to dance, certainly not with such reckless abandon anyway. It was undignified for one who was on the way to become a force in the anarchist movement. My frivolity would only hurt the cause. The anarchist then says that she became angry. How could the anarchist cause, which she said represented release and freedom from convention and prejudice, stop her from expressing her joy in life? Expressing joy in one's activism was not appropriate in the 19th century, and today it is still not really part of the activist imagination. Testing one, two. This is Carla Bergman's recording on um, September 18th. Carla Bergman is a Canadian activist, producer and director. She's the co-author of the essay Joyful Militancy with Nick Montgomery, a social scientist who studies alternatives to systems of power at Queen's University in Kingston, Canada. Carla Bergman has condemned this tradition of sad militancy. She believes... 
as did philosopher Michel Foucault, that sad activists are less effective than happy ones. At first, we really worked with the notion of sad militancy, which is really inspired by Foucault's most famous quote. I think it's one of his most <laughs> famous quotes. Um, you know, you don't, don't, do not think you have to be sad to be a militant, even though what we're facing is so, is so horrible. This is the paradox of activism. You feel both an overwhelming enthusiasm to change the world and an infinite sadness at seeing it fall to pieces. I feel both a tremendous sense of reassurance that I'm where I'm supposed to be, but also a sadness at the constant criticism I face. And from then on, you have to choose. You can either be constantly sad and angry, or you can make peace with this sadness and this anger. You can recognize that you feel them, but you choose to welcome the joy as well. Joy has sharp edges, like joy pierces and hurts and feels good, and it feels, it's everything all at once. And joy increases our capacity to uh, feel things um, and to do, th do more, where sadness depletes our uh, capacity and uh, deadens our, or dampens our ability to feel and do more. Throughout history, the word joy has not always had the same meaning. In Plato, the term joy is associated with Mania, the Greek goddess of madness. It's also used as a synonym for the word enthusiasm. In ancient philosophy, the divine characteristic of this world gives the joyful person an energizing and transformative enthusiasm going far beyond the simple feeling of satisfaction. For Spinoza in the 17th century, the state of joy corresponds to an increase in the strength of a human being. To be joyful is to be more powerful than usual. It is to discover an unknown energy, a momentum, a new lease of life that leads us to accomplish what we never imagined ourselves capable of. And in the 19th century, Nietzsche emphasized that joy is certainly a strong power, but also a real approach, a philosophy of life. For Nietzsche, a joyful person resolves to be joyful in spite of the sufferings of life. According to these philosophers, Joy is an approach, it's a process, not a subjective emotion. For Carla Berkman and Nick Montgomery, the reason we have this idea that activists are not joyful people is because we confuse the words joy and happiness. So I asked them what the distinction between joy and happiness is for them. In their book, Joyful Militancy, they draw on Spinoza, who was a telescope lens cutter by day and a pioneer of Enlightenment philosophy by night. Part of joy is that it it's not about being happy. We wanted to contrast it with happiness because um, it's often conflated. And, you know, like it makes sense in the English language. They're used often in interchangeably. You know, you have a birthday party and it was joyful. Um, but we're trying to use it in a kind of pretty nerdy technical sense that it actually doesn't necessarily mean feeling happy or feeling good. Um, it's a a growth in your capacity to feel and act and do. And we wanted to emphasize the collective aspect of that. And in contrast, happiness is an emotion and it's it's a subjective feeling. Like I can feel happy after, you know, after whatever, after my birthday party. And that's all really nice. Um, but under empire... Nick Montgomery uses the term empire to refer to the capitalist and patriarchal system we live in. But under empire, happiness, especially in the West, um, is held up as kind of the ideal. And 
that, you know, you, you can watch a, a bank commercial for saving for retirement. And the thing that they're marketing is happiness. You know, you get to be on a sailboat when you're 70. And so the promise of, of happiness, I think it's really helpful in, in thinking through the way in which happiness can lead us to sacrifice the here and now and to kind of um, to do what we're told or to accept the unacceptable um, in search of happiness or in pursuit of happiness. And so happiness becomes this ideal, uh, idealized emotional state that we pursue and make all kinds of sacrifices in pursuit of. Um, whereas joy isn't a feeling um, and you might like, it's not impossible that you might pursue joy, but that's not really what we're advocating. We're not saying to chase after it. We're saying that when we can actually find ways to be inside it, um, that's what's really transformative for movements. And so we wanted to get at the, the sense in which um, joy is this very different thing, um, which might actually be quite painful, right? Because growing... Um, the, the feeling that, oh, I'm, I've never done this before and it's really difficult and I'm growing or we're growing together, uh, it actually often doesn't feel really good, right? It's uncomfortable and painful and difficult. Um, and so it's really different from happiness in that way. So joy, with all its uncertainty and experimentation, is more a collective process for gaining power than a simple emotion. It is a strategy that allows us to try together, to make mistakes sometimes, but above all, to create. Because joy can be a driver of rebellion. This is the third point of our method for dismantling the patriarchy. Joy as a collective strategy. Nick Montgomery told me about a gathering of activists a few years ago that helped change the way he carries out his daily activism. We co-organized with an, a group of folks uh, this gathering called the Social Spaces Summit. And it was basically um, uh, an event to bring together people who are maintaining all kinds of social spaces throughout North America and to, to kind of share experiences and get to know each other. The Social Spaces Summit is a gathering of radical activists who reflect together on their practices. It lasts four days and is for activists who fight for social and political justice in spaces like universities, libraries, co-ops, self-managed art spaces. The goal is to share resources and learn activism skills through group meetings and workshops. Joy is not super present in a, in a collective meeting where you're sitting in a circle. Um, it doesn't mean it can't be. It just... It's, it's, in, it's in the doing, it's in the everyday, and it's really hard to pin down. I think I had a fixed idea of what that could or should look like based on my experience of activism of like, okay, I'll enhance our capacity to do these collective spaces and we'll all be smarter and better and more radical from doing that. Kind of like, oh, my name is this and I organize this space and this is what I know and this is what I learned. There's this beauty that comes from asking, what are the things that that make us feel individualistic or anxious or paranoid. 
Despite their good intentions, activists at these types of events often end up in a competition of egos. Everyone wants to show off their activism to others. And then they end up feeling like they're being judged or that they indeed judge the skills of others. This prevents fruitful interactions between activists, but not this time, thanks to Carla Bergman. And some of the things that Carla and others suggested were quite subtle, but I think they actually made a big difference. Like the... Um, <laughs> Carla was quite militant about we're not going to have a, a go around at the beginning. Like we're not going to do this kind of everyone sits in a circle nervously and says all their stuff. And instead people show up and they're welcomed and there's food and we sit around and we just talk in, in small groups based on, you know, whoever you're drawn to or whoever you're, you bump into. And it created a totally different um sense of of not just um not just the space but like oh, of what we might be here to do together we might actually be here to get to know each other in a deeper way Carla Bergsman intervention aims first to get people out of this best activist competition It's an absurd competition because there's never only one person who changes the world. With Gandhi, there were all the supporters of the Indian independence. A few months before Rosa Parks, who sat in the front of a bus in the 60s in the US, there was Claudette Colvin, and with them both the entire civil rights movement. In short, ego battles have no place in activism. By creating a climate of mistrust, egos prevent the spreading of joy and keep us from moving forward. Instead, after Carla Bergman spoke at this activist meeting, the joy spread like wildfire. The activists trusted one another. At last, they could make the room for the joy and benevolent radicalism that American intellectual Natalie Wynn talked about in the previous episode. It's this joy that makes the struggle bearable for all activists. And if more of us can fight without crumbling beneath the pain or the sadness, then we'll reach our goal faster. So joy also improves our collective effectiveness. And this is where we come to our definition of joy as a process of collective creation. Carla Bergman intervention didn't just make everyone feel good. She made sure that the summit actually focused on what the activists had come to do, learn from one another, share about past experiences in an atmosphere of kindness, not to single them out, but to put them at the service of a collective creation. This is what Spinoza, Carla Bergman, and Nick Montgomery called joy, the process of collective creation as a climate of trust where everyone takes care of one another. The strategy of joyful militancy allows activists to keep going, individually, first of all, but also collectively, to continue to create and imagine other possibilities. A better society in which social structures would be radically opposed to the values of patriarchy. And here, Nick Montgomery shared with me a memory of a rally that made an impression on him in college. He witnessed a reversal of the situation, a total inversion of the usual power relations, thanks to Joy. I mean, one uh, experience that stands out to me is, uh, it was about 10 years ago now, a bunch of us, I was a student at the University of Victoria, and a bunch of us got together and planted a guerrilla garden um, right out in front of the library. Guerrilla gardening is a political activism movement that uses gardening for environmental purposes. 
to advocate for land rights, permaculture, or to reclaim urban spaces by making it greener. In this instance, Nick Montgomery and his fellow students reclaimed their college campus by planting a garden. And there was hundreds of students, and it was it was kind of semi-planned, but no one really planned for exactly how it was going to unfold, and it was really un- emergent and at some point, like a school bus of kids showed up and they were helping to plant. Um, and it was this really joyful thing that just totally threw the administration off as well. Um, and so they called the police and the police showed up in these little, um, on their little motorcycles. And, the, you know, there's there's like five police and hundreds of students and... The students all formed a circle around the people who were gardening. And eventually the police kind of looked around and decided they were just going to leave because they they couldn't really do anything. And um, yeah, I think those, those kind of experiences where um, even in little ways, even if it's short term, uh, um, empire is really kind of outflanked and... You get the experience of uh, the dominant order really not knowing how to deal with what you're doing. Um, that is a really joyful experience to me. That's also what our joyful and collective mobilizations allow for. Spaces to think outside the usual overbearing values of what Nick Montgomery calls the empire. Joy gives us another possibility, one so subversive and disarming that it's sometimes the most effective. When we express joy within a group, it's a form of radical thinking in relation to a society governed by patriarchal violence and individualism. Because joy is fundamentally contrary to patriarchy. And to this extent, to be joyful is to already be on the path of a feminist society. And this is also what Carla Bergman found during her interviews with dozens of activists. I think that in all our interviews about frontline um, revolts or revolutionary activities or um, even protests, like those are all collective. There's no, there's not an individual. Um, it is, and joy is so present. The, the more it's collective, I think the, the, the more joy there is. Uh, I would say there, there's a comparison. There's a, a link between joy and uh, um, being together. In our book, like so many of our interviews, particularly folks who organized in Latin America, like joy is present always in resistance. Um, it's, it, even when it gets challenging, uh, it's usually there. This joy at the heart of Carla Bergman and Nick Montgomery's method gives me a feeling, a sensation that you've probably been lucky enough to feel if you've been to a protest or sung in a choir. I've never sung in a choir, although I did try about 22 times, but I suspect that singing the same thing as everyone else at the same time evokes that same feeling. At the beginning of June 2016, while scrolling through Twitter, I saw an article 
and then another one, and then dozens of articles talking about a large-scale mobilization in South America with the hashtag Ni Una Menos. I think it changed all of our lives. Veronica Gago is an Argentinian sociologist who has published numerous books, such as The Feminist Power. And she's one of the organizers of the Ni Una Menos protests that were held in several cities across Argentina on the 3rd of June 2015 and again in 2016 to condemn the high number of femicides. Hundreds of thousands of women marched in the streets, and then the movement spread to other countries in South America. It was exhilarating to see, even from far away. I remember exactly what I thought when I saw those images. I remember thinking, this is it. The feminist revolution has begun. Then, Nuna Menos became a movement. It became a symbol of the fight against femicides. Ni Una Menos works on two levels. It's a group of women, and at the same time, it's a movement. The slogan has expanded, so there are many women who say we're part of Ni Una Menos, and they talk about Ni Una Menos as these massive street protests. And that's what's most interesting to me, this dimension of the movement, beyond the fact that there's a collective which actually produces texts, appeals, manifestos with the collective signature Ni Una Menos. I think that's what's interesting is how it was appropriated and it became a movement. It's crazy because we start feeling this sense of joy when we're making the signs, but then it stays with us all the way through the protests. And it doesn't stop there. We feel the joy when we are creating, when we are marching, and then when we go home. Ni Una Menos is the symbol of this joy, which has become the heart of the daily rebellion of women in Latin America. I remember a lot about the first women's strike here in Argentina, the organizational meeting for the first strike. It was a very big meeting on the premises of a trade union. It was there that the idea was born after a very brutal femicide. It was there that we said, let's call for a strike. The media's first question was, what does a strike have to do with femicide? And I believe that the exercise in political imagination was precisely to say, we must be able to respond to this brutality of violence against women. And in particular, to femicide and transvesticide. We must respond with a form of political organization that allows us to escape from this position of eternal victims. I think it was very important to organize a huge and radical collective force in the streets, which at the same time would diagnose gender violence in relation to, to institutional racist, union, capitalist, colonial and patriarchal violence in general, but also would raise a fighting strategy. It's not only an account of how violence affects us, but what we do in terms of self-defense against violence. Collective joy is that sense of power that we feel both in our bodies and in the ideas we defend. That feeling is born from togetherness. 
It's what we feel when we march in the streets with the new Naminos protest, with the women's marches, or with Nutut in France. It's what we feel when we demand with one voice effective means of action to fight against violence against women. This is also what several studies in social psychology suggest. In an article published in 2015, researchers in social psychology from the University of the Basque Country in France and the University of Leuven in Belgium evaluated the positive effects of participation in collective gatherings, be that folk parades or militant protests. The results are clear. Both types of collective gatherings systematically strengthen collective identity. but also a sense of belonging and social integration. And at the same time, they prove self-esteem, collective efficiency, well-being, and trust among participants. The researchers believe that this is due to the phenomenon of emotional synchronization, whereby participants tune in in a collective joy. According to the scientists, the synchronization phenomenon also correlates with expressions of joy, social support, and engagement to the group values. Participation in group gatherings particularly strengthened the sense of belonging to the group when individuals subjectively felt that they were in emotional sync with others during the event. So what we learned from these social psychologist studies is that if you experience joy in the collective fight, well, it makes you want to fight all the more. It makes the fight easier. Veronica Gago also talks about a feeling that lingers along after a march and that has had a lasting and radical impact on her way of life and way of thinking, not just for her, but also for her fellow activists and even for their families. After the march, I started to realize that I wanted to organize things differently. So I formed a collective with colleagues and friends. And since then, we've been organizing demonstrations at work to demand this or that. This has led to a reorganization of the way we live in our households our sexual and emotional relationships, our ways of thinking, how we do politics, how we work and how we think, how we think about politics within our work, but also at home and in our daily workplaces. Sometimes joy takes us by surprise. Veronica Gago says that it transforms into a method when it becomes a daily source of rebellion. It becomes a method when, once the protest is over, in the days, the weeks, and the months that follow, we change little things in our daily lives. Joy allows us to persevere in the fight while continuing to question ourselves on a daily basis. So, what do we do now? How can we be activists and joyful people? Is there some kind of a manual for embracing this joy? Carla Bergman is one of those people who believes that joy is not something that happens when you drink a be-happy tea, but it happens with the right conditions. Like, 
at the activist summit when she encouraged everyone to put their egos aside. She explains that one of the conditions for joy in our daily lives is to discipline our tendency as activists to be sad and angry when we're outraged by an unfair system. To direct these negative emotions against systems of oppression without letting them invade our private lives and relationships. And so, to avoid this militant negativity, Carla Bergman gives us her own personal method. Our best antidote against that is to uh, is to notice the cracks, notice all the ways we are otherwise, and amplify the stories of mutual aid and collectivism and cooperation and. Most of my work has been around amplifying voices that are unheard or less heard. Um, and I focused probably the first decade or so on youth voices. Um, but as a woman, um, you know, feminisms were all, always part of that. And um, I ended up doing a lot of work around amplifying um women and trans and gender non-conforming voices and still do to this day. You know that feeling you sometimes get when you read a book, watch a movie or a TV show? That feeling of relatability, the one that makes you feel less alone because you know exactly what the author means, because you have already thought it, because you have already lived it yourself. Carla Berkman wants as many people as possible to experience this joyful feeling. For her, the strategy of joy includes giving a platform to the voices that are scarcely heard, in which we sometimes recognize ourselves. The ones that do good, that create solidarity, and the desire to fight together, but also those that give hope for the future. And so I think it's coming back to... Uh amplifying stories. I'm sorry, I feel like I harbor on that. But I think that there's so many stories of how, you know, um, things have gotten better and we have, um, there has been ways in which we've uh, improved our lives and lives of others. She produced the Emma Talk series, consisting of interviews with women, trans people, and non-binary people. She also currently co-hosts the podcast Civil Threats with Eleanor Goldfield, where they interview longtime radical activists about their experiences. So I think, again, it's about amplifying those stories because, you know, in the States, they called it an, they called them the uprisings of the summer of 2020 after the George Floyd uh, murder. And, um, and a lot of my, my militant and radical friends in the U.S. have, are, um, like they, they're seeing more, um, more people showing up. Uh, I'm actually feeling, uh, in a lot of ways, more hope than I've ever felt because uh, of the present of what's happening. I think it's worth, um, amplifying. Through this sharing of single stories, the activist wishes to reinforce the power of the collective struggle to fan the flames of joy. Oh yeah, 100%. I mean, delighting in each other, celebrating our voices, celebrating our works, um, celebrating uh, stories that aren't always heard and voices um, and, and all the ways we thrive amid and through the disasters that have always been here. Um, is is joyful, is, is uh, enlivening. The last point of Carla Bergsman method is to live in the moment and be part of the revolution every day because we're not 100% sure we will actually live the after-revolution. And I, I came up with a new word and I call it thrivistance because I think um, 
if we can center a goal of thriving in the everyday, uh, and that means everyone finding ways to thrive, um, it will require us to resist dominant orders of how to be together, how to, um, you know, ward off competition, ward off other ways that close us off from sharing and caring and loving and mutual aid and all these tendencies that are actually um, what we do when empire isn't, doesn't have such a strong hold on us. I recently discovered that the sound that most calms human beings is birdsong, most probably after the pop of a bottle of wine after hard work, right? But the fact that this sound, the sound of bird songs, calms human beings is very simple. Bird singing means everything is fine. If they stop, it means there's a problem. But birdsong is also synonymous with mourning, with waking up, and therefore with being alert. Birdsong induces in us a state of both calm and alertness. For me, there's no better way to define joy as a method of dismantling the patriarchy. A state in which we are serene but alert. A state that allows us to welcome new thoughts, new reflections, alone or with others. As activists, we often forget the joy of the present moment. We often focus on the after and forget to enjoy the now. Our focus is on what's wrong rather than what's being created. Despite the fact that, let's not forget, we've never lived in a more feminist world than the one we're living in today. Movements all over the globe are emerging every day to fight for women's rights. Reforms are being passed. Articles are being published. Stories are being told. Joy is the method by which we come together and the engine of our daily rebellion. So no, there's no exact instructions for collective joy. But joy is a crucial part of the method for abolishing the patriarchy. Joyful militancy is a tool for living one's activism in a peaceful way. But it's above all a way to gain power, to redefine the codes of the feminist society that we wish to see created, while ensuring that our activism remains critical and radical. I would have loved to see Spinoza and the Dutch renegade Jew of the 17th century and Audre Lorde, the African-American feminist poet of the 20th century, meet. Joy is a man's passage from a less to greater perfection, Spinoza would have told her. Audre Lorde would have replied, no, desire is. And in the end, both would have agreed. Of course it's desire, since it is the joy that allows desire to be born. Next episode, How Repairing Our Desires takes us one step closer to a feminine society. I'm Rebecca Amselem, and you've just listened to the third episode of The Method, a co-production by Louis Media and Gloria Media. This documentary series was directed by Alexandra Candilonguet. I co-wrote it with Lena Coutreau in collaboration with Fanny Ruet. Soukaina Cabal was editing and producing. The original music was composed by Clémentine Charuel and Julie Rouet. Stephanie Williamson translated the text from French to English. If you're interested in this podcast, please talk about it around you. Thank you.